Hi, I'm Jacob Flood, and I beat the often path by building the world's first brain-sensing headphone that powers Fitbit for your brain. Welcome back to the Beat the Often Path podcast. I'm your host, Ross Palmer. On this show, we celebrate unique success stories, help us think outside the box in our lives and careers. Joining me today is Jacob Flood, the founder and CEO of Eno, makers of Enophone headphones, headphones that can monitor your brain data just by you wearing them, helping you become more focused and productive and giving you a deeper understanding of how your mind actually works during the day. If you've been working from home, you know how important productivity is, especially when there's no one to keep you on track except yourself. Jacob has spent over 10 years in the mental productivity space, and he's the author of the book, Study Smart. Today, Eno has received millions in funding and has shipped their headphones to over 80 countries. So here's Jacob Flood of Eno. All right, welcome to the show, Jacob. And as is customary with all Canadian entrepreneurs, we're going to begin this episode by singing Oh Canada. Will you join me? Oh I will. Canada, our home and native land. Like most Americans, I don't know the words to Canada. <laughs> I only know it in French. <laughs> oh, really? get out of here. All right, because you're in Montreal, that's why. And now the audience is like, that was the cringiest thing I've ever heard. All right, won't attempt to sing again. We're going to go back to the conversation. Thanks for joining me. So you've built headphones that track, monitor your brain. And you've had some decent success. You started on Kickstarter. So tell me about the journey that brought you to bringing this product out. Yeah, so it, most people know our story Kickstarter onwards, but it starts about a, a decade prior. I have been just waist deep in self-improvement, productivity, culture, biohacking, nootropics, the whole nine yards. And, and this was during university. I, I was really getting into trying to figure out, you know, how can I get better grades, less effort, you know, basically optimizing every every minute of every day. Uh, and what I discovered was that this whole field runs incredibly deep and has a lot of insight that just about anybody, whether you are, you know, type A entrepreneurial type or you are in any other field of work can benefit from. But the only real way to get access to it is to read the thousand hours of data and studies and books and all that. And so my mission's kind of been for the last decade to try and bring a lot of that to light and share these tools with people so that they can take best use of them and learn how to better engage with whatever it is that they want to be engaging with. And so for me, that started with a tutoring company. I was helping people learn math and science back in university. And what I realized was I was spending more time teaching people to learn than I was actually teaching the math and science. And so mm. that led to a whole rabbit hole of trying to productize that service, right? Building tools that can help people really understand themselves and, and bring to full attention uh, the, the, the kind of science that underlies how they can accomplish those things. I wrote a book on it, ended up building this product, and, and this is really an extension. Yeah, talk to me about that book. So when, when in the process did you write that book? Probably. So, so version one of this attempt was uh, I, I tried to turn that tutoring company into kind of like a SaaS ed tech thing. So uh, I describe it as Khan Academy meets Skype tutoring. The logic being, you know, if you're teaching math and science basically the same way every time with every student in tutoring, why don't you just record that and give it to them as, uh, you know, digestible as little a video. video tidbit. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so we, we built a platform that had that and then it had plugins where you could request like little five to 10 to 15 minute sessions of tutoring that would be cheaper all around and you could get, you know, more bang for your buck. Um, and fundamentally, the premise behind that platform was that the reason people were failing their math and science courses was that the content was the problem. Like 
people would tell me, well, when you explain it, it makes sense. When my teacher does, it doesn't. And I'm like, great, I must be amazing at this. And so if I just record myself doing this, it'll be perfect. And the reality is that's not that's not the problem. Like the content wasn't the issue, right? The textbooks weren't not good enough. There was something else there that was preventing people from fully understanding this and getting you know amazing grades in math and science. And so the product was a flop. It didn't go anywhere. It, it, it landed you know, like a lead balloon. Um, and so V2 was I said, okay, if it's not the content, it's got to be something about the process, right? People are digesting the same content from their teachers and going home and then reviewing and practicing and learning and digesting that content differently if you're getting a, a, a you know C's and D's in your class versus if you're getting B's and A's. And so my logic was let's find out what the science says about the psychology and the neuroscience of learning, of memory consolidation, of how you take in information, break it down into digestible pieces, remember it, and then retrieve it when you want to execute on your work. And just present that as fact in a book and, and give people the tools that they need uh, in order to be able to overcome whatever they might be struggling with. And, and again, the premise of V2 was if it's not content that's the problem, it must be information. They must just not know how to study properly at some level. Hmm. And so spent the two years in university, wrote a book on the psychology of learning, published it on Amazon. And uh, I got good feedback on it. People read the book. They said, wow, there's a lot of information in here that's really you know, interesting. It's super useful and it really helps me understand. I'm like, great. And then six months later, you go back to that same friend. You're like, so like, how is your grades like studying going? And they're like, oh yeah, I, you know, I'm doing this, I'm doing this. I'm like, cool. Did you learn anything from the book? They're like, oh no, I haven't done anything of what you suggested. Oh, like, <laughs> Great. Thanks, man. Um, and again, it was, it was just a failed premise, right? The idea that people were not getting successful grades was because they didn't understand the science of how to learn was flawed. When you ask most students, like, look, what study habits do you have? They'll list off a dozen different things that they know work, that they've experimented with, that they learned from their profs or from other students or from literature. And then it's that second question of like, oh, well, how often do you do that? And they're like, oh, never. I usually just go home and I read the book and I hope it works. Yeah. And so the, the problem wasn't the information. It's putting it into practice. And really the last six years for me of building Eno has been a, an adventure in that. It's how can we give people tools to take what they know and, and put it into practice in a way that's going to be more effective. So uh, having done all of this, I mean, obviously the elephant in the room when you're talking about this is differences in cognitive capacity or capabilities of the individual. To what extent do you believe in that now, having done so much research versus what you might have 10 years ago? There definitely is a difference. Like, look, uh, I, I am, you know, as, as naturally gifted as you could call it in math and science. And my siblings, for example, um, are not. And, and, and no amount of, I think, uh, crazy effort is going to overcome the fact that the premise underlying that is I really like math and science and they don't. And so for every hour they put into it, I'm going to put 10 and therefore I'm going to get better at it. And so there are natural differences in what you're interested in that those tend to manifest as natural differences in what you're gifted in based on the amount of subconscious time you're spending actually engaging with that topic. But I do believe that almost all of us have at some point something that we want to do that we're like, if only I was just a little bit better at it or a little bit more organized or a little bit more effective 
or more consistent or any flavor of that criticism, if only I could overcome that mental barrier, I would be able to do X or Y. And that's what I really want to do. And those mental barriers are at some level fictitious. They are the manifestation of our inability to say, I want to do X and then engage with the vast array of neuroscience that's required to get your brain and body to do X. And I think that overcoming that is something that we can all train ourselves to do. Yeah, that, that's a very interesting premise. And I like that we've touched on the time component of this a little bit, because that's something that I really noticed. Take, for example, classes that are very technical, like I was in human physiology when I was in high school or calculus or things that are very difficult. I remember that my human phys teacher would tell all of the students, you need to study every day for 20 minutes. He had these flashcard systems, all of these ways to get average students to retain more of that information. I didn't do any of that because I never needed to. I would just look at it the night before for 20 minutes and I would ace the test. And people would say, how much did you study? I'd say, I didn't study at all. Not at all. And I would get the top grade. That's just, that's who I was. But not just to brag about that because later I noticed something else kicked in. So a few years into my high school experience, somebody came from college who was just visiting the high school for a day. They just wanted to come check it out. And they came into our class. And they had been out of the class for many years, and they said uh, the teacher asked them questions about the material, and this person still remembered. They were probably a C student, but they still remembered key components of all of the things that they learned. And I thought, that's interesting. It took you a lot longer to learn that information, but you retained it for years, whereas me, it took me five minutes to pass the test, which is why I was so good at school, but then the second I walked out of that door, I forgot it forever. And if you asked me in college to go back to high school and then do that, I would say, I don't know. I don't know anything. I look at my calculus books, and I'm like, how did I do that? How did I get 100% on a test? Well, I don't even know what I was thinking when I was 18 years old. So there's also, there's this short-term component of memory and performance and all of that and focus, but then there's a longer term of retention. And I think I, school was so easy for me because I had extreme short-term memory, but very bad long-term memory. So the system just really rewards my type of brain, whereas it really punishes people who maybe take longer to absorb information. But I, I've witnessed that firsthand. So I'm curious, like, what do you think about the time component of memory of focus all those things. Yeah, memory consolidation is a, a wild topic and it goes very, very deep. But, but generally, you can think of a memory as consolidating based on the amplitude of that memory, like how emotionally impactful it is, how intense it is, uh, and then the frequency of that memory. So how often you are retrieving it from memory in order to say, I'm going to uh, remember this thing and therefore you know, reinforcing the consolidation of that memory. And, and it is the case that you, you know, you can put in a crazy amount of concentrated attention on something and create a high amplitude but low frequency instantiation of that memory. And then the memory will be very powerful immediately. And then it will wane over time as all memories do. Whereas if you have a space learning, you will have a tiny amplitude of memory consolidation, but that over time tends to reinforce itself and it gets a little more uh, sticky as a result. And so when you go, you know, a year later, five years later, the fact that you tried to remember it many months in a row will make it so that that memory stands the test of time longer. Uh, and so ideally you do both, right? Ideally you have a spaced repetition on the things that are important to remember and a high amplitude memorization of the things that are not important. And the question therefore becomes, what is important? What is that's important? When I go in. <laughs> that's the yeah. ultimate question, yes. 
that's part of what I go into in the book is like, you know, what you want is to remember a decade from now, the theory, the, the fundamental component of the science of whatever it is that you're learning. And you want to be able to retrieve that to use as a building block upon which you layer all the foundation of the rest of what you're learning. Whereas the facts, the name of this small part of a bone in your left toe, do you really need to know that five years from now? No, we have Google. Like, you don't need to memorize that stuff. So what you want is a spaced repetition of the theory where you're constantly ruminating about it and thinking about it and remembering it so that a decade from now you can still explain it to somebody. And then you want a high amplitude memorization of the stuff that is just factual in nature that you need to know today to prove that you can know it, but that, you know, five years from now is not going to be important. Yep. That makes perfect sense. Uh, by the way, that bone is called the Flobbins bone. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, I remember no, it. Uh, mm-hmm. As I recall, yeah, very, um, uh, anyway. So I'll quote you on that one. You're, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, this guy is an idiot. Um, the progression that you've taken is a familiar path for anybody who's entrepreneurially minded. In fact, I've had a similar progression myself. You start with something, you have a business idea, then you say, okay, me teaching one-on-one the same thing over and over again, that's not the best use of my time, especially when I'm just repeating myself. So let's productize that. Let's make a book. Let's codify it in some way. And you kind of graduate through the steps of entrepreneurship. And then you ended up on this product. I think a lot of people can recognize the thought patterns that brought you there. But how did you specifically land on a product? And how did you land on this product as being the next part of that journey? Yeah. So where, where we left off, I'd written the book. I'd realized, like, you know... I gave it to a bunch of people, they read it, they appreciated it, and they put zero into practice. And and so I started looking up some of the science of habit forming. The logic being, if somebody learns something and they're like, okay, this is the thing that's good for me, you know, brushing my teeth twice a day. Uh, What are the steps to take that from a fact, a piece of information that you know, to a habit that you're engaging with on a regular basis that is actually going to be impactful in your life? And there's a lot of really good research about how to create those self-reinforcing habits over long periods of time. Um, BJ Fogg is one of the the premier uh, researchers in this area. He came up with a model, I believe he calls it BMAP. Behavior is motivation times ability times prompt. And the logic there is that if you have the motivation to do something, you actually want to do it deeply in your soul, and you have the ability to do it, then often what lacks is the prompt. You, you have to remember to do it. It's got to occur to you randomly during the day that, oh yeah, I should do this thing at the same time as you have the motivation to do it and the ability to do it for that behavior to actually get done. And so I was looking at other fields that had done this well and looking for a proxy of a product that has managed to get people to engage in repeated behaviors that stick, that don't dissipate after a week like you know the the memory of the test studying and where i landed was fitbit my current partner lost like 80 pounds using their fitbit and they attribute the success to that because they said basically having a physical manifestation of this desire to get fit that lives on your wrist that speaks to you during the day that reminds you of the thing that you're going to be doing and that quantifies it to increase the motivation to succeed that unlocks for a lot of people that ability to create the habit of being more healthy. And the logic for us just felt so clear is if we have a Fitbit for our physical health and we have an O-ring for our sleep health and we have a whoop band for our athletic health, 
why is there no Fitbit for mental fitness, for, for mental health, for the ability to build, you know, productive, safe, healthy work habits that isn't physical, that is that is more cognitive in nature. And so our goal was like, look, can we build a Fitbit for your brain? Something that's going to help you engage in these habits at a cognitive level that Fitbit's kind of mastered at a physical level. That's fascinating. Well, I like the example because one of the, the BMAP doesn't address this idea of punishment. Like, if you, Why do you brush your teeth? It's because the first time you get a, a $5,000 dental bill, which you don't have to experience in Canada, you're like, what is that? The, then you're like, oh, maybe I should have been brushing my teeth. There can be negative reinforcement. <laughs> like if you get a shock to your brain every time you don't focus or something like that, to what degree does negative or punishment, negative reinforcement uh, help in making habits? The, the science of that is, is starting to come out much more prominently now, but they've been studying this for decades and come up with different theories. And, and the, the trauma theory is the one that I have found most compelling lately. It's this idea of you want to encourage a behavior, right? And there's kind of two reasons you would do a behavior. It's either it's because it's something you desire or it's because of something you're afraid of. And you get to essentially choose when you want to create a new behavior. Is this something I want to do out of fear or something I want to do out of love? And so can you negative reinforce your way to creating new habits? Absolutely. You can give yourself a negative trigger, like zap on the wrist. There are products that do that too. Um, really? That oh, will scare you. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. A habit aware, I believe is the product. And you, you press a button oh and it zaps you. Oh, right. Uh, and okay. you, need to, you need to decide to zap yourself every time you do the wrong behavior to try and decondition it. Wild, um, wild, the, the wearable world is. Um, but you, you can do that where you can negatively condition yourself and you're like, you know, every time I don't do this habit that I want to do or don't go to the gym or don't, you know, focus, I'm going to hate myself and shame myself and feel terrible and, you know, starve myself for a week in order to. And, and, and you will probably achieve your goal. But what you're going to do along the way is you're going to create an incredible complex around that behavior and you're going to create trauma around that behavior and you're going to get fear and anxiety around that behavior. And it's going to lead to a bad life. You're going to end up setting yourself up for failure because ultimately you're doing this not because it is a desire that you've conditioned in yourself, but it's something that you're deeply, deeply ashamed of. And I just don't think that's the way to succeed at a long-term goal as important as being able to focus at work or being able to be healthy. And so the opposite is also very true. You can positively reinforce yourself every time you do something properly. And, and it actually... The science shows it sticks better. It tends to work more effectively because positive reinforcements tend to be something that we crave and seek and therefore we'll reinforce on our own. Whereas negative behaviors, the moment the stimulus is gone, you will tend to a little bit revert to the mean and say like, well, okay, I'm still traumatized by this fear, but I, I, I feel a little less bad today. So I maybe I'll try giving up and see if I don't get scared again. And so it, it's there's a lot of good data that shows recently that positive behavioral rewards work better than negative ones. And, and then that, I think, is just a better society and a better life we want to build. There's so many implications of a statement like that, <laughs> from ranging from government to punishment to raising children. But I agree, obviously. That's sort of what we were hinting at. So you wanted to make a Fitbit for the mind. That's a pretty lofty goal. How do you begin that process? Where, where does that start? It, it's messy. The start is, is always very, very messy. And so our logic was like, look, we need to learn everything we can about this field, right? We need to become experts in this whole Fitbit for your brain category. And so that means understanding what everybody else is doing and what works and what doesn't. It means 
fundamentally answering the question of is this technologically possible um, figuring out what the actual go-to-market and the business plan and the financials and all the rest of the businessy stuff is going to look like and then getting a prototype to see if this would actually work and trying to test it with customers and so for us where we started was a program called uh, next canada they have a next 36 program that helps incubate entrepreneurs and, and figure out answers to some of those questions and throughout that program we started talking to neuroscience researchers and other neurotechnology founders and testing out all of these products and going to um, meetups with other neurotech builders and hackers, right? There's an incredible community called NeurotechX that, that was really helpful in getting us started on, on this kind of journey of discovery of the neurotech field. And so, you know, six months of that, of just messing around in the dirt, figuring out what is possible, validating our idea and testing the pitch with dozens of people every day, um, led us to, by the end of 2016, to have a pretty good sense for, A, the fact that this technologically can absolutely be done. It was just a question of solving the design and engineering problems with it, not overcoming some sort of technological barrier. And secondly, that when you describe this pitch to people of like, you know, you sit down at your day, uh, at your desk in early morning, and you're like, today's going to be awesome. I'm going to get everything done. And then you check your email and you get a Slack post and your phone vibrates and then you have a quick meeting and then coworker interrupts you. And then you're like, wow, it's been four hours and like I've gotten nothing done. Yeah. When you tell that to people, their eyes light up and they go, oh, my God, that's every day for me. Like, I feel that in my soul. That that emotion to us was the clinch. It was OK. People want this. They need this in their life in, in a way that I think we we didn't fully understand until we really talked to the consumer. That's awesome. But yes, especially now in the Zoom world, the post-pandemic world, the remote work world, so many pings and bleeps and things distracting us every second of every day. Obviously, the ability to have meaningful, unbroken focus is more important than ever. So it's everything. It's everything. It's everything. Yeah, we, we especially find, for people trying to that. advance themselves. Now, nowadays, if you're working from home, you are essentially mandated to become a productivity expert in a way that you didn't have to before, right? <laughs> That's an excellent thought. Yeah. You're right. If you were at the office, you can show up and there is a social and designed yep. pressure that will push you in the direction of getting your work done. Yep. That doesn't exist at home. You all of a sudden need to be cognitively, uh, we, we use the term mentally fit enough to decide to focus on a boring spreadsheet instead of the thousand other things that you could be doing that are more interesting. And, and that requires practice it requires training and it requires understanding of even just the science of how you're going to be able to put yourself in a perspective that you'll desire that and some people naturally have that or they naturally have an anxiety that pushes them towards that ultimately both are you know uh, fantastic tools for getting focus done but for the rest of us it takes practice and we're in a world right now where if you are working from home, you are basically responsible for becoming an expert in designing your own cognitive life. And that's not easy. And I think it's worth giving credit to the fact that it's not a simple task to train yourself to be able to do these kinds of boring things during the day that are required to build anything meaningful. That's so, so, so true. I hadn't thought of it that way, but you're absolutely right. And one of the things that I've noticed as we have gone through this, I've been a remote worker for almost 10 years, so I got a bit of a jump on the gun 
versus people who just started during the pandemic. But one of the things that I've noticed is that you have these micro cycles, something uh, that's just a term I'm going to use, but you probably know exactly what I'm talking about. Micro cycles throughout the day. So it's like if I have my coffee in the morning, I have a, a bit of a boost. And then after a couple of hours, I'll go down a little bit and then maybe I should eat something. Then I'll have another little boost. But then towards the afternoon, all the caffeine will wear off. You go through these micro cycles throughout the day where you're more inclined to be focused or productive but in addition to these micro cycles, which happen day to day, you have these macro cycles. Some days you're just tired. Some days you don't feel like doing things. Other days you seem to be able to work from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. No problem. So how do you feel now with the tech that you've been able to build about these changes in brain chemistry? Or how, how, Am I even phrasing this the right way? I'm sure you know what I'm talking about here. See, the funny thing is, is there is no correct way to phrase this right now, that the science of this is messy. It's in development right now. And there's a lot of really good research that points to it. But there is, this is an 800 year old field. This is new. Psychology is only right now looking at the impacts of all of these different things during the day and how they impact your level of cognitive effort, cognitive workload, engagement, attention, mind wandering, motivation, all of those things meeting some flavor of what you just described. And so what I find is really, really important at the fundamental level that that people um, should absolutely focus on is two things. Number one is if you're going to take advantage of your natural chemistry of these, you know, the physiological reactions that you have to the world around you and of these peaks and valleys in your attention, your motivation, your fatigue, you need to be able to feel them and identify them and name them and therefore put them into practice. And it's very similar with uh, labeling your emotions, right? A lot of people that go to counseling, myself including, the first thing they realize is they're like, oh, I feel a lot, but what is anger? What is sadness? What is like fear? And, and even more specific than that, you know, what is uh, frustration versus humiliation versus angst? Like those are nuanced, different flavors of emotion. And you need to be able to label them before you could ever imagine doing anything with them. And so it's same is true in this world of cognitive performance. The, the most important thing is to be able to say, I currently feel X and therefore I should do Y. And, and that's what, you know, fundamentally is, is built to help you do is to put words to that and to give you data and numbers that you can associate with it to watch how that changes throughout the day. So you can get a better sense of how your behavior is changing and, and therefore be able to put that into practice and make decisions based on it. That's a that's a great point. And if we look at the debate of productivity or the way that it's been structured on social media and books, there are two different sides of this coin. So the question is, when should you push through that resistance? For example, I don't want to go to the gym, but then they say, if you just put on your sneakers, just put on your shirt, and then that helps you get into the cycle of going to the gym. Take one small action. There are so many moments in our life where we think, I don't want to do this. So sometimes the answer is you should push through and you should do it anyways. Other times it's you should listen to your body and not do it. When is it one and when is it the other? It's so hard to say. So this was the, the, the second point. I said there were two. Um, the first is recognizing your emotions and knowing what is happening and, and when you are ideally at like a cognitive peak, when you are fatigued, and therefore when you should focus, when you should take a break. The second is getting to a state where you can reliably show up and do what needs to get done without requiring on the emotional trigger to be there. Because there are going to be days that you feel awful, that you just, you know aren't capable of performing at the same level but you still gotta show up unfortunately right like sometimes things still need to get done and it, it, it there is a habit that can be built 
of being able to show up and say, you know what, today I don't feel great, but I'm, I'm going to put in the work regardless. And I'm going to try to do some work and maybe I won't get 100%, but I'm going to accept that I'm going to do 80. Uh, and and some, for some people, you know, the whole quiet quitting movement fundamentally is that, right? It's a decision of, I think that it's better for me to give 80% consistently than 110% sporadically. And you, you need to be, as an individual, able to balance both of those things. And this is where it starts to get into the, the nuance is like, there's no perfect strategy for this. There's no winning formula that can tell you how hard you're supposed to work and when. It, it depends on a thousands of inputs, including, frankly, the work that you're doing, right? There are going to be days when you say, I don't feel well. And you look at your calendar and you're like, you know what? I got nothing. So now's a good time to take some breaks. And now, given my fatigue is very high, given my cognitive workload is very low, I could probably take three, four, five hours off and there will be no impact. But there are going to be other times when you're like, I'm really like I'm at my limit. But there's this really crucial thing that has a deadline tonight. So you know what? Maybe it's not the best move, but I'm going to push through and I'm going to do that. And as an individual, you are responsible for becoming an expert in figuring out the nuance of when you're going to engage with those things. And the only way that you're going to get there is having those two tools in your tool belt. The ability to label how you are feeling and decide what the implications of your body and your mind state are. And then the ability to say, you know what, even in cases where I'm not feeling great, I am capable of showing up and getting something done. That's super cool. And that's a perfect segue into the next question, which is the tech as it stands today, the Enophone as it stands today, how does that help? What does it do? And what can I expect if I start bringing that into my life? Yeah, so I actually, I haven't even given the description of what it is. So, so Enophone is There will be an intro, by the way. The audience will have heard okay, an cool. intro. <laughs> like, who is this guy? Uh, why is he here? No, <laughs> but please continue. Because, yeah. like, you, you get, I, I have a tendency to do that. I jump right in the weeds. I love the, the, the no, no, messy middle intro. part of it. And <laughs> yeah, then people will be like, but what do you do again? And I'm like, okay. I am um, a shoe so, salesman. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Best shoes for focus you'll ever have. Awesome. Um, so it's a, it's a brain sensing headphone. It's essentially Fitbit for your brain, right? It allows you to understand your level of mental effort and readiness and efficiency. Those are three metrics that we've defined that globally give you a better sense of your productivity and your mental health. And so what the product does at a fundamental level is anytime you put it on, it's a noise canceling headphone. It helps you create a good environment. You can listen to your own music or we have focus music built into the app that is designed for uh, focus and that's customized to your brain. And then you do your work, you do whatever needs to get done. And anytime you're wearing the headset, you're going to be getting data about your level of productivity and mental health, both about what's happening to you in your brain. And also we monitor what apps you're using so you can correlate the two. You can see when I'm on Microsoft Word, I'm getting X amount of focus. When I'm on Facebook, maybe it's a little less. And so our goal is to help provide you the data, the insight and the guidance that you need to be able to become a master of your own productivity and mental health. And so after a day, maybe you'll get some data about when during the day you were focusing and you know how focused you were and which apps were most interesting. After a week or two, we could start to extrapolate that over time and tell you, you know, this is the best time of day for you to be gauging in deep focus based on the data that we've seen from you for the last week. And this is how long a session should be before you should probably take a break. And those kinds of insights will help you make decisions about how you are engaging with your time uh, and, and become a little more deliberate in the way that you're thinking about your productivity. That's super cool. So if everything goes right the next five, 10 years, where do you see this tech heading in a positive world? What's the evolution from here? 
I think the premise that we started with of Fitbit for your brain is is fundamentally where we want to head. So the way I explain it, if you know nothing about physical fitness, like you can't tell me anything about what exercises are going to help for you, the difference between strength training and cardio, the difference between the different macros you're supposed to be eating, how much sleep you're supposed to get, like this entire physical health bubble of information that takes hours and hours and hours to get up to speed on. If you know nothing about that, you can still go buy a Fitbit and it will give you slowly in a drip feed the kinds of information and learnings and content and everything that you would want to engage with that. And it does it in a way that is inherently habit forming, right? They start you small. It's just about tracking your steps. And they're like, get 10,000 steps. And then you'll get 6,000 to realize like, oh, I, I thought I was a little more active than that. Maybe I need to walk a little more. And then week two, week three, week four, they'll start to say, well, oh, we also have these workouts that you could try and you can engage in a 15 minute hit training and that will give you these benefits. And you're like, oh, cool. And then a month later, they're like, oh, we also have this food tracking that you can use to understand what the macro breakdown of your meals looks like. And we have this sleep tracking and we have this subscription content and this platform where you can connect with other users. And all of a sudden, a year later, if you choose to engage with this at its full depth, you could be a full physical health expert. And you could understand this at a depth that you never would have if you decided instead to start reading literature reviews and, and actually going into the science of it, because the reality is that stuff's messy in a way that is very difficult to parse. We want to be the same platform for your mental and cognitive health. And so if you want to learn more about the science of productivity, it starts very tiny. We just tell you, look, wear this headset whenever you want to focus, and we will show you how many focus minutes you're actually engaging in during the day, which is a fun starting point because a lot of people are like, no, I focus like at least six hours of my eight. And you're oh like, <laughs> six minutes? And how then many? they put on the headset... They, they, they put on the headset and just just in terms of their actions, not even in terms of the, what the brain data is saying, just their actions, they will go through a week of this and they'll realize that they decided deliberately, I want to engage in focused work an hour and a half a day. Mm. And you're like, ooh, that's insightful. You thought it was eight hours, but really in that eight hours, you're doing six and a half hours of a little bit of everything, your emails, you're checking up on Slack, your meetings, whatever it may be. And only an hour and a half of actually deep, focused, productive work. And so the question is then like, well, A, how do I increase that? And B, how do I make sure that that hour and a half is the best hour and a half you could possibly have? Because if that's all I'm getting, it better be amazing. And so then we start giving you a little bit more data, a little bit more content, a little bit more information. And the goal ultimately is that in five years, if you're buying this product, regardless of what the headset looks like, regardless of the form factor, it's something that you could start with. And that will slowly but surely teach you to understand the science of productivity so that six months in, you are an expert in how to organize your time and your day, what your data says about you and your habits and how that differentiates you from everybody else, how to optimize both for productivity and for work-life balance and mental health in the same conversation, how to organize what tasks you're doing and when you're doing them. And this whole world of science that, that, is, that is very, very deep and developed that hopefully you can start to gradually gain insight into so that you can take that with you wherever you go. It's a fabulous concept. It's very easy to understand with the Fitbit example. I think in a positive sense, and, and this is where one of the great debates of our time right now, right, right, right now, where all of these bosses and these CEOs, they want everybody to come back to the office. I'll use this as an example. And of course, people who've gotten used to remote work and like it don't, they don't want to go back. 
And there's many different sides to this, such as if we don't commute, then the pollution is lower, which is good. Less cars on the road is better for all of us, for the pollution and for the climate. So if I don't have to commute two hours each way to work, I think of that as a positive. The boss wants me in the office so that they know how much I'm working. Now, again, I said I've been doing remote work for over 10 years at this point. And what I noticed is every time I sometimes I would go into an office for a day and I always felt like I got way less done in an office environment than I ever do on a typical day simply because there's so much chit chat, there's breaks, there's lunch breaks, there's all this gossip. There's, there's so many layers in an office that prevent you, in my opinion, from doing that kind of focused work where you say, I'm just going to sit down and bang something out for an hour and a half. Yeah. So question number one is, how many hours, and this is the great debate right now, how many hours does somebody actually work in an office or remote in an eight-hour workday? That's part of this. But then the other question is, how can an employer or somebody who's in a position of power use technology like this to monitor, track, and control somebody that they want that data on? Is there a negative side of this type of technology if it gets into the wrong hands or if it's linked to the wrong system? We already have time tracker systems where say, I'm going to look at your screen and take a screenshot every 15 minutes randomly to make sure you're still working. Do you foresee this kind of tech finding its way into systems like that? I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm going to dive into that second one first because I think it's, it's really interesting. So we, uh, the moment COVID kicked off, actually, uh, what we did, we have about 5,000 people using our product in the wild that we've shipped. And we we messaged a lot of them and said, like, hey, man, I want to learn what you're thinking right now. Um, and in our breakdown of our customers, the vast majority are uh, what you would traditionally call employees. They are knowledge workers. They're the designers, marketers, engineers, coders, whatever you will. Um, and then about 20% of the top is uh, managers and execs who spend more time managing team than they do actually doing their own work. And so we talked to the managers. We're like, look, what are you currently thinking about? And it was interesting to hear that the vast majority described to us. They're like, look, I'm talking to my team. I'm trying to help them with everything. And what I'm hearing from them is that they are burnt out, that they're struggling, that they're trying to figure out how to balance, you know, this strange new world of work from home and the COVID stress and their own work. They're overworking. That one we heard a lot. The average number of hours in a day went from eight to about 12 when COVID first struck because everyone's at home working all the time. Um, and they were saying, look, I want to help my team. I just don't know how. And I actually see a lot of the, uh, the overcompensation with time tracking software as being that. Fundamentally, employers... You know, I, I am an employer myself, but I don't speak on behalf of everybody. But, but what they were telling to us was that they want to help their team be productive. They want to help them figure out their work-life balance and navigate the complexities of essentially becoming a productivity expert in their own home. They just, they don't know how. Because at the same time as trying to be a manager and understand the intricacies of your business model, manage your team, figure out your KPIs and your expectations, like their job has a lot of time commitments. Do we expect them to become experts in the science of productivity? the same way that we expect employees to do so. It is it is wild, the fact that we're just assuming that everyone's going to be an expert in all of these topics and understand the deep neuroscience of how these things are structured without ever actually giving them the tools to do so. And so what we found was that the vast majority of employers, when presented with a solution like ours that says, look, give this to your team, 
we're not going to give you any data about it. Like this is going to be for your employees, from your employees, by your employees, and they're going to use it for themselves right. to learn about how they can structure their time better, how they can improve themselves. And it's going to basically be a tool that is volitional because right. Fundamentally a headphone, you can take it off whenever you want. Yeah. And then you just use your AirPods and everyone's happy. Right. Um, if you give your employees this and you tell them that you are not tracking anything, do you think they'll use it? And they're like, oh, yeah, absolutely. Like our employees are desperate for something that will help them understand how to be more effective and how to figure out, you know, how to maximize their productivity, but still live a happy life. And so I think that this trend right now is very short lived and I'm hoping it's short lived because I think it's a little bit of an overcompensation from anxious managers who don't know how to figure out how to organize a team that will be as productive as possible and that are grasping for solutions. And these software companies that say we're going to track every mouse click popped up and basically said, well, this is the best that the world can offer you right now. And I think that if we can start to offer tools that are a little bit more personal, that are about the individual, not about the data, that we can get to a place where people understand, look, empowering teams is more effective than trying to track them. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And the volitionally is that's the key word here, because a lot of what separates a utopian vision of the future from a dystopian is that word. Exactly. Right. I believe in personal development yeah. coming from inside, whether that's physical fitness or reading books or philosophy, all of these things, the great philosophers, they teach you to work on yourself, your mind and to be more productive and to have greater ethics. That is something that are these, these are deep personal core values of mine. However, the minute that these kinds of things become imposed on you from an outside body, suddenly we're in a lot murkier waters. And for every CEO that does have good faith intentions and wants to improve their team's work-life balance, I shudder to think of what happens when an Amazon requires that somebody hook themselves up to these kinds of data platforms and say, ah, you didn't work that day. Therefore, I'm not paying you. I mean, you know, there's a lot of bad faith actors out there that might want that data for nefarious reasons. But obviously, let's hope that doesn't happen. Or, Well, the, the reality is, you know, I think the product can be built in such a way that you can make that impossible. So, for example, right now we have our headset uh, and we have the app that accompanies it and the data is stored on the app and then it's stored in our cloud server. And, and there's two easy things that we did with our first product that made it so that fundamentally it must be a consumer driven experience and the employer could never make something uh, of what you're describing. Number one is it's again, it's a headset. You can't you can't really force people to wear headsets. They can just take it off and then things are better. I think that form factor decision is very important. Whereas if you have, you know, a, a bracelet or a like uh, an ankle monitor, if you will, uh, th there are form factors that are easier to mandate um, over your headphones fundamentally cannot be mandated in most work environments. And I think that is a good safeguard. And then number two is when you create your account on your our app, you create an account for you. And there's no data API for pulling in 100 people's data at once to crunch the numbers. It, it is an individual app with an individual login. And so for Amazon to construct an entire system that can manage everybody's logins would, would be so immensely complex and, and frankly, so easy to block from our end that you can make sure that that doesn't occur. And fundamentally, the hope is that the vision of this future of quantified self will be driven by people who have 
the individual's best interest at heart. And I think the consumers know that. And I think they're going to vote with their dollars in a direction that will help push that forward. That's that's true. And yeah, not to not to derail things, of course. Um, but on the positive side, you've raised millions in funding so far. You've got another funding round coming up towards the end of this year, if I'm not mistaken. You mentioned 5,000 people mm-hmm. actively using the product. I think I saw somewhere that you've shipped this thing to 80 different countries, so people around the world are using it. You've been working on this for some time. We talked about 2016. So how has the feedback been from actual users, especially people who've been using it for a while now, for an extended period of time? It's been great. I think the... What we noticed when we first started this was that there's a lot of neurotech devices out there and fundamentally what they all lack is this ability to just be seamless, to just feel like you're using another high tech consumer device built by people who have your best interests in mind for you and then ignore it and then not have to engage with it and press five buttons and figure out what the data means and interpret it all. It's got to be something that's as simple as putting on a headphone. And so what we noticed was we've been working on our software uh, for the last year, iterating on feedback from our customers. We started shipping in 2020. And so we've had about a year and a half's worth of feedback from, from different customers. And the amount, the average user engagement right now is at an all-time high for us. It's somewhere just north of an hour a day. Cool. Which for a consumer electronics device, in particular a neurotech device, is incredible. Sure. There's no other platform in neurotech right now where you could get an hour plus a day of brain data recorded so that you could start to understand it, right? Some of our customers have measured 3,000 hours of their neural data using our product. And so, like, it's just incredible when you start projecting what you could start to understand about yourself with that kind of stuff, right? When you imagine something like measuring cognitive decline, one of the big problems in literature right now is when you measure cognitive decline, doing so in a single 5, 10, 15, even an hour-long session is very, very, very difficult because cognitive decline is a very personal thing. What you want to measure is the trend line, and you just can't do that in a single session. And when you go into a lab and try and set up a clinical EEG to measure what's going on in your brain, it takes two hours to set it up. And then you have to do these crazy sessions and it costs you thousands of dollars and two clinicians need to walk you through it. Like nobody's going to do that. It's completely inaccessible. Whereas now we have a headphone that you could just listen to music with and all of a sudden get 3000 hours of your brain data that you can start to analyze. It's amazing. Like you could start to detect stuff like cognitive decline and Alzheimer's and stroke and concussions and dementia at a granularity that is not possible in the labs. And so I, I just see such a powerful future for this tech. And the feedback that we've gotten from our audience is, look, I've tried all of these neurotech devices, and this is the first one that feels like something I want to wear, that I want to have 3,000 hours of. And that's really exciting to us. That's what keeps us going. That's so great. And obviously, you know, Tim Cook's vision of an AR future, a lot of these things follow that same trend or the Apple Watch, for example, the new iPhone detects whether you're in a car crash and automatically. So there's so many things like this that we're starting to see. And again, like I love technology, despite all of the fears and flaws. 
there is a really exciting component to all of this stuff. Again, detecting things early, uh, enhancing yourself, augmenting yourself, enhancing your capabilities. Of course, for somebody like me, that 3,000 hours would just be witnessing my brain steadily decline. Then I just cry myself to sleep and say, oh, yep, it's official. Your brain is going to shit. <laughs> Dang, you were so much smarter two years ago, but now, ugh. Look at your conversations earlier. So much sharper, so much more focused, but... So there's a really exciting component of the, all of this that I that I fully embrace, and I think people who who like tech, we as a species, we've sort of said, you know what, let's just jump into this, let's just have fun with it, and let's see what happens, and consequences be damned, right? Um, but there is a really exciting component of that longevity thing and optimization that's just so intriguing for people who like you have a mind to do that. So it's it's super cool, and I'm really happy that. You're seeing the positive signs that your company is growing, that the feedback has been good. Obviously, the headphones look really cool. The web uh, interface looks really cool. It's all coming together. Um, so, yeah, I think it, I think it's fantastic, man. Are you optimistic? Do you feel good? Are you happy with your life as it currently stands? Are there some hurdles you still want to get over? Oh, there are absolutely hurdles. And this is the biggest thing, right? Like, what I want to make very clear is is not to overstate this product, that there is no silver bullet. There's no magic tech yeah. out there that is going to solve all of life's problems, right? This is a tool that can help guide you in the right direction for discovering how to essentially execute on what is most important for you. And I think that's a beautiful future, right? When you start to remove barriers from the ability to go from what I want to do to being able to do that. So I want to you know, learn this Python course, and then we can give you tools that will help you focus and help you organize your time and structure within your day and take breaks so that you can get the 80 hours required to learn this Python course. Um, ultimately, I think this is where technology thrives. And that way we as individuals can spend more time thinking about what we want to do and less time thinking about how we're going to do it. And so where, where my life is right now is I'm now spending a lot more time thinking about what I want to be doing with my time and much less time thinking about how to enable doing it. The first decade of my figuring out this cognitive improvement uh, kind of self-help mental fitness world was almost exclusively to do with the how, right? It's all the habits you need, all the different stuff you could be using in order to be able to be more effective at what you want to be doing. And, and the goal, I think, is to be able to get to a point where you can say, I think I have enough tools under my belt to start to focus more on the what. What should we be doing? Why should we be doing it? And so that's what I'm thinking about a lot now. Yeah. And I think that that is that is the dream we have for our customers is they can be spending a lot more time in that world, too, because I think it's a, a more beautiful place. Absolutely. And I'm sure you have logged yourself probably more than 3000 hours with your own tech. Ha has any part of your own life changed? Have you gotten any insights into how your own brain functions that you were surprised to find? Oh, yeah, for sure. So, so first thing is uh, I schedule zero calls 2 to 4 p.m. Cool. That's my rock star zone. Like that is where everything okay. happens. And so <laughs> my entire day is organized around what the data told me, which is like, man, 2 to 4 p.m., you can't let that go. Okay. Like that is when you need to be thriving. Uh, so uh, my, my morning routine has been structured around that is I will get up. I have a much more elongated morning routine now. It's about two and a half hours of slowly getting into my day before I ever start work. Um, because again, the data told me that I have a much more effective morning if I have a longer morning routine. 
Then I have that kind of 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. where I schedule all of my meetings. That is like, that's the valley of my uh, cognitive effort. The ability to focus is much, much, much lower there. And so that's where I tend to schedule stuff that is naturally invigorating, that doesn't require a lot of cognitive effort to focus, like conversations, right? Then I have my lunch, I have my 2 to 4 p.m. rockstar zone, and then the follow-up at the end of the day, the kind of 4 to 6, 4 to 7, where you can kind of clean up everything, organize your stuff, set the next day in motion, and then the evening. So just from a productivity perspective, it, my entire day has been changed based on the experiments I was able to run and what the data was telling me about, about what worked and what didn't there. That's so cool. And that insight alone is something that I think will have a lot of people salivating just hearing that. They say, hey, that sounds really cool. Just like, nope, two to four, I do not schedule meetings. And also there is yeah. something kind of funny about the fact that you schedule all of your meetings during the Cognitive Valley. <laughs> that says a lot. I mean, people have mixed feelings about meetings in general, and that, that's pretty sure. damning. The, yeah, right? We doubt. One of the things that we did notice, actually, is that you can... So I, I wear the unifones often during meetings, and so I can measure my brain while I'm in the meeting. And when you are engaging in these kinds of conversations, it's naturally invigorating, right? So you don't need to be at your best. It will bring the best out of you. Oh, okay. Because that's the social pressure of conversation is a great stimulant. And so if you want to be thriving the whole day, you need to take the boring stuff and put it during the best times. And then you take the fun stuff, the engaging stuff, the stuff where you get to actually be with people and put that during the the valleys. And that way you're going to have kind of a little bit of the best of both worlds. That's so cool. And that's one of those examples of opposites that you sometimes hear. I love those kind of opposite things that go against conventional. Not intuitive, right? Yeah, but it, it makes so much sense. And obviously yeah. I experience it because it's just like doing this. I get so invigorated from doing this and from talking with smart people. So now I need to figure out when my valley is and I'll put this there and then we'll just go from there. Um, exactly. We have another fun one, which was um, we have a, a music platform in our app that we built with uh, a team of neuroscientists and musicians where it's uh, it's AI generative music. So it creates the soundscapes in real time and it's all uh, ambient sound. So there's no lyrics to the music. And we were able to parameterize that music in such a way that we can control with a knob the level of intensity or complexity or warmth or brightness. Uh, and, and we can basically create a mood with that music uh, in, in a very programmable way, a very controllable way. And so what we did was we plugged that into the brain data. And so when you're listening to the music within our app, as your focus starts to go down, we will tweak the knobs of the music to try and figure out what needs to be done to get you back into that zone. And it's a perfect closed loop system that will learn to create the kind of soundscape that you need to be more focused. And so another learning I had was we, we tested that against a whole bunch of different kinds of focus music and other different kinds of soundscapes. And you imagine um, there, like, there's a, like a kind of common takeaway, which is that music with lyrics tends to be less good for focus, right? Uh, and, and the idea of it was that it was distracting. And you'd imagine that that means that your focus levels go down when you're distracted by this music, but the data is the opposite. Your focus level actually goes up your level of cognitive mental effort go up because inherently music with lyrics is emotionally impactful. And what that does is it basically siphons out your energy. You can't not tune into it because it's just so good. It's so emotionally catchy. And that means you're basically wasting cognitive resources on that music. And so when you use music like ours or, or other good ambient focus music, uh, your mental effort will actually be lower. And that's a good thing because that means you can put more of that mental effort towards your work. 
That to me was another kind of startling one where you're like, oh, that feels backwards, that your effort is lower and that's better. But it, it, it turns out that's actually exactly what you want. So cool. Fantastic. Sweet. And I, there's somebody I'm going to put you in touch with after this. Adam Hewitt is the founder of Evoked Response, somebody I talked to before. He's been in this space of the generating of music for a long time. So he's more on the music side of focus. So I'm definitely going to connect yeah, you guys after this because there could be some really interesting synergy there because you have a product. Uh, and we're he's we're been already in, in touch with Adam. I love okay. Yeah. I was going to yeah. say, I was like, there's too much, <laughs> too much similarity there, but that's, that's awesome. Well, it has been an absolute pleasure talking with you, sir. We're uh, at the end of our hour here. Very cool how your life has progressed. Very cool the thoughts and the wavelength that you're on now is awesome. So congrats on figuring this out for yourself and congrats on the early success that you've had and the funding to date and the positive feedback. All very cool stuff. I predict a very bright future for you in the coming five to ten years. So I look forward to staying in touch. But as we wrap up this episode, can you give us a final word or promote whatever you'd like to promote here? Nothing particular to promote, but check out Enophone. It's the coolest thing we've ever built. And so you, you definitely want to head to enophone.com and, and see what we're doing there. Um, actually, I guess I should promote. I think we're having a back to school promotion right now. So, uh, yeah, right. <laughs> if I didn't do that, but take a look. It's awesome. Uh, and, and then otherwise, I'm, I'm Jacob Flood. You can reach me on LinkedIn, on Facebook, Twitter, at jflood says, I think is my handle. All right. Sounds good. Uh, I really appreciate your time. And with that, the official podcast is over. Over.